Erev Tov, good evening. We are back in our shiur on Agadata. We are in the first Mishnah in Masechet Berachot. We have just finished a few weeks of delving into the writings of Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the writings of the Chida, Dam HaRash Sariyo, a few other Chachamim that we've quoted. And tonight, we're going to be looking into a few unique sources, one that I have never taught here in our kolal before. So I'm very excited to introduce it, and that is a book by the name of Geon Yaakov. Geon Yaakov. This is actually a fairly recent book for me. I had not owned it. It hasn't been truly published until fairly recently. So it was published for the first time under three years ago by an organization called... Ahavat Shalom. Ahavat Shalom is a yeshiva in Jerusalem. Mostly of Kabbalah, under the leadership of a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Hillel. Part of the yeshiva's mission statement is an organization, a subdivision called Yad Shmuel Franco. And over there, they print many, many, many manuscripts of Chachamim that were previously either in handwritten form or have not been printed for a very long time. And therefore, whenever they have something new or something interesting, I do my best as much as I can from here in San Diego to get my hands on it. And so not so long ago, to my hands came this book that's in front of you. You'll see the PDF called Geon Yaakov. Geon Yaakov, Chidushim Ubiurim al Agadot Talmud. Novel insights and explanations on the Agadah of the Talmud, the parts of the Talmud which are not halachic, are not legal. Chibor v'gam Yazdo was authored by Hagaon HaMufla, the great genius HaMekubal HaElohi, the Kabbalist. HaChacham HaShanem VaKolel, the truly wise man, Moreno HaRav Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov, Ben Kvod Moreno HaRav Yosef Chaim Ibabel, the son of Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Babel. Who is Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Babel? Is that the Ben That's the Ben so right now we are studying the book of the son of the Benishchai. Mirashei Golat Bavel Bedorot Acharonim. He is from the head of the leaders of Babylonian Jewry, meaning Iraqi Jewry, Baghdadi Jewry of the last generations. And like I said, it was printed for the first time in handwritten form, uh, from the handwritten manuscript. When did we say? Three years ago. Mamash Tavshin Ein That's three years ago. So for the first time in our kolal, for sure, we're going to be studying something from here. But it could be for the first time in the West Coast, or the first time in the United States. Who knows? This book is fairly recent to us. Just a little bit about the son of the Benishchai. And the truth is that normally I would ask you, do you know anything about Rabbi Yaakov, the son of the Benishchai? And it's not a fair question to ask because there's very little to be known about Rabbi Yaakov, the son of the Benishchai. Uh, even the Wikipedia entry on him is very brief and concise. Most likely people don't know so much about him. It doesn't help that the father of Rabbi Yaakov is the Ben Ishchai. So oftentimes when you're in the presence of giants, you're, you look like a dwarf. Not because you're a dwarf, but because the giant is so much bigger, is so much more famous. And for whatever reason, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, his teachings are so famous, his commentary in the Talmud is so famous. His halachot are so famous. But his son is exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite of that. We know that Rabbi Yaakov in his father's lifetime was really, like it says, he was, he was uh, you know, hiding among the, the vessels. 
that he was a humble person and he didn't try to make himself a leader. He didn't try to step up to the front. He didn't want to take over the family empire. He just wanted to study Torah. And unfortunately, part of what our Chachamim lacked so much was a good marketing team. There are far inferior rabbis to our Chachamim who had such tremendous marketing. They had their own printing presses. They had video cameras on them from the moment they stepped foot into this country. Pictures, audio, video, books. And our Chachamim, unfortunately, for whatever reason, didn't merit to market themselves, perhaps because they were too busy studying Torah to worry about marketing themselves in such a way. We find mention of Rabbi Yaakov very often in the writings of his father. So throughout the commentary in the Talmud, you'll find the Benish Chaya will say something, but my son told me this, or my son's opinion is that, or my son shared this insight with me and he records it. And unfortunately what many people come to assume is maybe the Benish Chaya only included his son's writings because it was his son. You know, I love that Achanan is in Kola with me right now. And maybe even if he didn't say something so intelligent, I would include him in the book. But that's not the case. Rather, when the Ben Ishchai is quoting somebody and he's quoting his son, it must be that his son had something to add to the conversation. And it's not true that every time a son succeeds his father, that it's only because of connections. In this case, we find that the Chachamim of the generation of the Ben Ishchai's passing, they unanimously vote on Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Rabbi Yosef Chaim, to lead the Jewish community to the future. Not just because they were, and they were trust me, they were not lacking rabbis in Babel. And then Baghdad was not a, didn't have a shortage of Chachamim. Baghdad had some of the most glorious and most famous Chachamim of our history. But they chose Rabbi Yaakov because he clearly was the one worthy for that position. And I think that when you look at Rabbi Yaakov, you see a personality that is a mirror of his father. In his own right, he has his own genius and his own brilliance. But Rabbi Yaakov did everything he possibly could, not just to print his father's teachings, not just to ensure that manuscripts would survive, that books would be printed, but also dedicated his life to the, the mifal, to the, the tremendous accomplishments, the machine that his father had put into effect. The derashot that his father gave, he gave also. The classes his father gave, he gave also. The batekhness that his father taught in, he taught in also. The style of Torah which his father taught, he tried to emulate in his own way as well. It was really a mamshikh darko, was the one who continued in the footsteps of his father. We find in the Benishchai's derashot, in the speeches of the Benishchai, he has a little section in which he writes a derashah that he wrote for his son's bar mitzvah, in honor of his son's bar mitzvah. So it says, Derush shesidarti b'siyata d'shmaya, a derashah that I wrote with Hashem's help, la'ovi, to my beloved, meaning he wrote it for his son. La'ovi, to my beloved, ve'or eni, the light of my eyes, b'ni kiri, my precious son, Yaakov, Hashem yari chema v'shotav, Hashem should grant him long life. Here you see a unique side of the Benishchai. You see the father. The Benishchai, the father. Not the Benishchai, the Posek. Not the Benishchai, the chief rabbi. Not the Benishchai, the Mekubal. The Benishchai, the father. Hashem should merit. May I merit to see his chupa and his greatness in Torah. It should be a great chacham. He should be a fearer of heaven and should be righteous. 
And I wish to see his children and his children's children, may it be Hashem's will. From a very young age, Rabbi Yaakov was known throughout Baghdad, not just for his Torah, but also for his righteousness, for his midot. He was known to be a humble person with pious midot from a very young age. In fact, there's a letter. On Tuesday, I taught about Rabbanit Farcha Sassun, Rabbanit Flora Sassun. And for those who don't know who she was, I highly recommend, if I can, to listen to that shi'u, to just look up her name. was one of the giants of the last generation. And in a letter between the Benish Chai and the Sassoon family, we find the following words. Shevach le'elit barach, I praise Hashem. Yeshlo, my son, Rabbi Yaakov, has k'tiva yafa u'binar chava. He has a beautiful penmanship and a tr- tremendous, a wide intellect. Here in our city of Baghdad, there is no one more eloquent in the Hebrew language than my son Rabbi Yaakov. I mean, the mastery that he had over the Hebrew language in his writing, in his speech, was unique. He was known for that in Baghdad. And we find that when he prints his first work, which is a very small kuntres, it really doesn't do justice to Rabbi Yaakov, we don't even, I don't have a copy of it. But as a brief commentary in the Chumash, the Ben Ishchai writes a beautiful introduction. He calls him Bni Ne'eman, Netta. He calls him my, my, my precious son. Yaakov Bachalo Ya, Yaakov that Hashem has chosen. When he passes away, the Ben Ishchai, at the eulogy of the Ben Ishchai, meaning at the funeral of the Ben Ishchai, Spoke at Amit Chacham by the name of Rabbi Shimon Agassi. Does anyone know the name of Rabbi Shimon Agassi? Have you heard of him before? I once taught you about him. Many, many years ago, many, in the summer of 2017 perhaps, or 2018, not so many years ago, I gave a series here of Shirim in the summer on Shabbat, on Shabbat afternoons on different writings of Chachmei Sfarad, random collections of Sephardic teachings. One of the writings that I quoted there was from Rabbi Shimon Agassi, who was complaining why it is that the, the Easterners are always the poor horses that are beaten by the Westerners that sit on the chariots. Markevot Amin Adiv. He was giving a derasha and shira shirin. Why do we have to give up a superior culture for an inferior culture? was adamant about this, Rabbi Shimon Agassi. Rabbi Shimon Agassi was a colleague of the Ben Ishchai. And after... The Ben Ishchai passes away. Rabbi Shimon Agassi says the following words. It's a pasuk where it says that Hashem will bring you to the land of your forefathers and that He will do good for you. Even greater than for your forefathers. Pasuk zeh, says Rabbi Shimon Agassi, this pasuk, Chetzio harishon keneged haniftar morenu verabenu vateret roshenu nishmato eden. The first part of this pasuk is speaking about the Ben Ishchai who just passed, our master, our teacher. And the second half is opposite his son. The son of our great rabbi, that should be separated for life, Gaon Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov. Keneged Hanifta, Humer, Beviachad, Unai Eloecha, Al Haaretz, Jarashu Avotecha, Virishta. 
about the deceased Ben Ishchai, we say that Hashem should bring you to the land of your forefathers. Klomar, that you should merit to your place in the world to come in Gan Eden. And you will merit to enjoy your time with your holy forefathers. And the, the half of the Pasuk that corresponds to the son, Yakirli, my precious one, who Omer, the verse says, Don't be afraid, my servant Yaakov. Lomar, you might say, Echani nisharti levadi kilakach Adonayit Adoni avi ma'al roshi v'nafla ateret roshi. He said, you may be worried, Rabbi Yaakov, that Hashem has taken away your father, and now you're alone, and you don't know what to do. Ve'anna efne le'ezra u'miye anay l'sita. Where will I go? Where will I turn for help? Ki hineni mevasarcha sh'yagdil Adonai shimcha mishmo v'chisacha mechiso. Says, I bless you that Hashem should give you from everything He gave your father. He should give you a part of it. And that's what the second half of the Pasuk is referring to. So already at the funeral of the Benish Chai, the rabbis of the city were not just certain that they wanted Rabbi Yaakov to lead them, but they were reassuring him. Rabbi Yaakov, you will lead us just as well as your father did. You have nothing to fear. That's exactly what happened. The truth is that Rabbi Yaakov steps up to the plate. Like I told you, he gives all the derashot of his father. We have a testimony. There's a book, Masab Bavel, about a journey to Iraq. And there the author writes, Biyom HaShabbat, in the Shabbat afternoon, Dorshim Lifnea Mincha. The rabbi customarily gives a derasha. He gives a sermon before Mincha. You know, in our kila, we don't do that in the winter just because of time. But if we were to pray at a proper time in the morning, I don't know, 7 o'clock, then we would have time even in the winter to have a derasha before Mincha. And most of the community goes to hear the derasha of Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Rabbi Yosef Chaim. And while the rabbi is speaking, the head, the president of the community, the leader of the community sits on the floor in front of the rabbi who's speaking. And even many ladies come to hear the rabbi's derasha. And they sit in a special lady section to hear the derasha. This goes into the theme of my Tuesday class in the afternoon to the United Kingdom which we discussed in Baghdad, there was a culture of women who studied Torah. This was part of the culture. To the Ben Ishchai Shirim, ladies came. To the San Shirim, ladies came. The Ben Ishchai San Rabbi Yaakov was in charge of the tzedakah organization of his father, so like in most Sephardic communities, poor people didn't go collecting door-to-door. They went to the central there was one central fund that was agreed upon by everybody. This central fund would tax you. They would know how much money you had, how much money you make. You would have to pay a certain amount of money to tzedakah. Nobody complained. Nobody tried to uh, f- falsify their taxes. But then nobody would ever have to knock on your door either. You knew that you gave what you needed to give already. 
and the Chachamim that you appointed to run this fund, that were trusted by everybody in the city, they would give to the poor people whatever they needed to give. And that way you had a perfect system in which people had where to collect money for tzedakah. Uh, the Benish Chaisan Rabbi Yaakov took over this fund. We have letters between him and the collectors that come from Israel to collect in Babel. We have a number of letters between them. There's a Rabbi Yoshua Moshe in his book Ketayamin. He writes about the Benish Chai son that not only was he an uh, expert in practical Kabbalah, whatever that means, but he was also famous that he had done a number of miracles. Some of the miracles are a little bit morbid and I'd rather not share them here, but they most definitely were miracles that the people there said that they experienced. He had a number of yeshivot, the Balei Batim, they used to come study with him every night, aside from the Rashot that we mentioned. There's a newspaper that was printed in Baghdad, not regularly, but every once in a while, a periodical called the Yishurun paper. And the Yishurun paper prints, Lifnesh Vuaim, two weeks ago, Niftar Harav HaGadol passed away the great rabbi Moreno Harav, our rabbi and teacher, Yaakov Baharav Agon Yosef Chaim, Yaakov the son of Rabbi Yosef Chaim. Ben Chamishim Chamesh Anim, he was 55 years old. The deceased was one of the greatest Chachamim of Babel. Aside from he was greatly renowned in Torah, he was very humble, known for his good Midot. He loved every person. He would greet people with a smiling face, with a positive demeanor. The deceased was the last pillar of wisdom in this family. We lost a tremendous amount in his passing, especially the Jewry of Iraq. When Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Yosef Chaim, passes away, his son, Rabbi David, the son of Rabbi Yaakov, the, son, the grandson of Rabbi Yosef Chaim, takes his place. And he ultimately leads Iraqi Jewry up until the time of the founding of the State of Israel. Sometime in 1950, things get a little complicated for the Jews in Babel. He decides to leave at a certain point to London, where he stays for a few years. And ultimately, the Benishchai's grandson comes to Israel, where he lives for a significant portion of his life. Does anyone know about what year the Benishchai's son passed away in Eretz Israel? The Benishchai's grandson. The son of Yaakov. Take a guess. Now we're done. <clears throat> it seems the Benish Chai's grandson passed away in Bnei of 1982. So for those who think this is hundreds of years ago, and there were Sephardic Chachamim that we never got to meet them because they all died in the Spanish Inquisition. I don't know whatever narrative people are believing today. So in 1982. And I can tell you how many of us knew, not me, I can't speak, how many people who are listening to the shiur knew rabbis before 1982? Of all the rabbis that you knew, was any one of them in the caliber of the grandson of the Benishchai? Why is it that we're hearing about him now in the introduction to an Agarita class instead of the whole world knowing who he was, where he lived, what he wrote? But that is the, that is the story of every one of our Chachamim and God willing, we will turn back that time.
Without any further ado, I would like to get into a chidush of the Ben Ishchai's son on this Mishnah that we've been studying now for a number of weeks. If you open the PDF, it should be on the second page. It should say Masechet Berachot in Rashi's script over there. And he says here, Me'ematai Korin. Do you see the page that I'm on? For those of you who have your cameras on, I appreciate it very much. Me'ematai Korin. From when do we read Shema in the evening? This was our famous question in the Mishnah. From when do we read Shema in the evening? Our rabbis who comment on this Mishnah already explained that it should have said Ematai. Why did it write The extra mem there is, is redundant. There's no need for Ematai. Ematai already means from when. Ematai from when. Why do you need the extra mem? Ayen Go look what they wrote there. And in the footnote here, and I'm not sure if the footnotes are written by the Benish Chaisan. It could be by the publisher. The footnotes say, look for example at the Ben Yehoyada that we studied last week, which discusses very much why Me'ematai. Velinir Atamir appears. That our rabbis told us in Masechet Yoma, Tam Shnitakev Moshe Rabbeinu Ala V'Shalom Bahar Arbaim Yom V'Achakar Kibbal Torah. Our rabbis on Masechet Yomah explained to us the question, why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu had to wait 40 days up there on Har Sinai before he was able to bring us the Torah? What was going on for 40 days? In order to empty himself from all of the food and drink that he had eaten when he was still in this world. So what do you see? Why does Moshe Rabbeinu wait for 40 days? What's the purpose of waiting for 40 days? Al-Khanan, why did Moshe Rabbeinu wait 40 days? To cleanse himself. To cleanse himself, to get rid of anything physical that was inside of him. Yeah, that's what you're going to say. The other one, they also say, and the Alkut in Mishlei. Shelo zacha Shlomo HaMelech Alav HaShalom lechol chokhmah ulechol hamada that Moshe Rabbeinu only merited all the wisdom and knowledge that he had ad sheitana arbaim yom once he fasted for 40 days. So Shlomo HaMelech in order to receive his wisdom fasted for a certain amount of time. V'chein Rabbi Akiva and also with Rabbi Akiva notice here Rabbi Akiva is spelled with a hey. Akiva with a hey and Aleph is interchangeable. Not always are Chachamim consistent in how they write the name of Rabbi Akiva. And the footnote mentions, look at footnote 4. Look in Shari Kiddushah. What is Shari Kiddushah? Are you familiar? Who wrote Shari Kiddushah? Rabbi Chaim Vital, in the name of the Arizan. That if you remember the famous story of our rabbis who entered the Pardes, they entered the orchard. They only merit to the wisdom that they merited once they fasted for a certain amount of time. We also find in the Ozerua in Chot Shabbat, 
ברבי עקיבא שהתענה על אותו יתום שהושיבו לפניו, ולא היה מקבל תורה עד שהתענה עליו 40 יום. There was a certain orphan that was put in front of Rabbi Akiva, and he didn't accept Torah from Rabbi Akiva until Rabbi Akiva fasted for him. At that point in time, he was able to receive Torah. And so you find here, says Rabbi Yaakov, the son of the Ben Ishchai, you find a recurring theme over and over and over again, that it's the absence of the, the abstinence from food and from drink that brings a person to some kind of understanding of Torah. So let's go back up to the main text. The intended lesson from here, is that in order that, that what we need to do before we receive the Torah is to purify our physical form. And that is why Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudah Anasi, begins the whole oral Torah with a letter Mem, a super a, a, a redundant Mem. להורות שלא ישיג האדם התורה שבעל פה ולהבין דבר מתוך דבר that a person will not merit to imatai, to receiving the oral Torah, until they first go through a physical cleansing. Like our rabbis teach us in Masechet Tamid, that if a person wants to live, they should die. If a person wants to live, they should die. Over there, Masachat Tamir, it also says, if a person wants to die, they should live. Makes any sense to anybody? No, let's look it up in just a moment. We're going to look it up together, okay? By killing the desire for unnecessary physical indulgence. Then ultimately he will merit this, the Mayim, or the water of Torah. If a person will first be willing to break themselves physically, they will merit to the, the, the knowledge of the oral Torah. The Ben Ishchai here is suggesting something that we know to perhaps be some form of ascetism. Some form of what Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam, refers to as perishut abstinence from this world. That it requires a certain amount of abstinence in order to understand that which is divine. And that's the reason why the Ben Ishchai, uh, the, the, the ben Ishchai son tells us that there's an extra mem. The mem is the 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu, mem is 40 in Gematria. Mem is the 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu spent on Har Sinai before he was able to receive the Torah. He first had to overcome that which was physical inside of him. This is the message that I wish to explore today. But before I explore it with you today, I thought it interesting and relevant to our times. If we look a little bit into that piece of Talmud that I quoted to you, that whoever wants to live should die because it's a highly unusual teaching. So if you look up, I added a link to the Zoom invitation. If you open the link, there's a link in Safari to Tamid 32a. Do you see that? If you click on the Zoom invitation in the Google Classroom, at the bottom of that invitation, in the stream section, there should be a link to Tamid 32A. You found it? 
Let me tell you where to look. Marley, if you can't find it. You want to go to Safaria? Go to Safaria. Click on Talmud. Under Talmud, you want to select the Masechet Tamid. You're going to have to scroll down. It's going to be in your left column, most likely. I don't know what, what format you have, but your left column is a Tamid, and then you want to select page 32A from the drop-down menu on top. This all begins in a page earlier, in 31B, in which Alexander Mokdon, who is Alexander Mokdon? What's Mokdon mean? Macedonia. Macedonia, very good. Alexander of Macedonia, otherwise known as? The Great. Alexander the Great, have you heard of Alexander the Great? Was a very strong king. Alexander the Great came to the rabbis in the Negev, the rabbis in the south, and began to ask them a series of questions, some of which they wanted to answer, and some of them which they did not want to answer. And this whole page of Talmud discusses this back and forth between uh, Rabbi, uh, between the Rabbanei HaNegev, the rabbis of the Negev, and Alexander the Great. And the truth is that from a superficial reading of this page of Talmud, you quickly realize that this is a whole piece of Agadah, and it's impossible to understand what it says here literally, unless you want to believe you're crazy. But let's, let's book, look back one section. Amar lehem, Alexander tells them, Idin mitkarei chacham. So I, I linked you to section 8, just go up to section 7. Who is called a Chacham? Who is called a wise person? So what do they answer him? He who sees the future, who anticipates the consequences of the future. Where do we hear, where do we have that teaching already recorded in the Mishnah? In Perkavot, Perkavot, we say Ezer Chacham, Olad. And then he asks the next question. Who is called a Gibor? A valiant person. Amulo, again, they answer him using the Mishnah. The one who's able to subdue his evil inclination. His Yetzirah. He asked them, Who is called a wealthy man? They tell him, All of this you know. Who is happy? Whoever is happy with their lot. And then he asked them an interesting question. Rabbis, What can a person do in order to merit life? A person wants to live a long life. What should he do? They tell him, He should kill himself. Of course, right? You want to live a long life, so how do you do it? You should kill yourself. What can a person do so he could die? Say, a rabbi is, he should live. <laughs> if he lives, then he'll die. I'm sure you already understand that this teaching is a cryptic teaching. And it's intentionally cryptic. In order to take messages out of it. There are really two ways to understand this teaching, at least from the Mepharshim that I saw. The first is, if a person wants to live, they have to die. Meaning, die not to overindulge in this world. An abundance of food and drink and luxuries will cause a person to die. We talk about living, living meaning living the life. If you live the life, your life will be lived very short. 
Live a healthy life, a humble life, a modest life, and you'll be healthy. You'll be able to live. What if a person wants to die? Indulge. Indulge. Live. Meaning, live the life. Go party. Indulge. That's the surest way to die. Seems like a really cryptic way of expressing a simple idea. So there's obviously much more to this than of course. the eye. Of course. Because you don't have to say you have to die to live, live to die. You could say, live moderately, sip carefully of this world, do not overconsume it, otherwise you will shorten your life. Or vice versa. As you know, the Rambam would say, or anybody in health and philosophy wisdom would say, or the opposite. Um, you, want, you, know, it's, uh, you want longevity, just be moderate in all things. And El- Elchanan whispered in my ear that it doesn't make any sense. Our Chachamim are speaking cryptically. Our Chachamim are speaking cryptically. Uh, and they, they are telling us another idea. Chachamim suggests the person wants to live, they should live modestly, humbly. A person who's arrogant, nobody wants them around. And because of that, the person sees someone arrogant, they're always wishing bad things on them. A person who lives modestly, they're humble, they're kind. That kind of person, meaning they're always, they're always, they're, it's like they're dead. They, they don't take up any energy from you. They're not asking anything from you. They're always taking care of themselves. This kind of person, people have compassion on. They want them to live. They help them live. They make Good people, people want them to live. Bad people, unfortunately, not as much. I once remember uh, in the in the Tanya when I first started studying Judaism years ago, you know, as Amen. someone who's like very devoted to health and other people's health, it said that a way to gain wisdom is to despise one's body. And I always said, well, this is like a very give me Christian sounding hate the body type of thing. And I always actually have seen that thread in Judaism. It's not even an intelligent asceticism. It's like self punishment. We're actually going to discuss that, if Hashem gives us enough time, we're going to discuss that in the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas right now. So give me a minute, we're going to get there. Uh, he then asked an interesting question, which I feel is a good advice for all the Jews who are involved in politics. What can a person do so the people will accept him, the people will want him? Amu, they said, Yisnem alko v'shilton. He should hate the king and the government. If you want people to like you, hate the enemies of the people. Who are the enemies of the people? The leaders of the people who use the people for their own good. Says Alexander the Great, my advice on this matter is better than your advice on this matter. That a person should love the king and love his government and use his connections with the government in order to help people. So here you have Alexander the Great coming from a place of leadership, saying, instead of despising me and gaining popularity among people by being a contrarian, by being a revolutionary, join the system and use your influence to help people. Which is similar again to another theme of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, which he talks about, the ability to not, not always do you do tzedakah with your money. Not always do you do tzedakah with your... Sometimes you do tzedakah by the connections that you have. You help people with that. And so the Alexander Mogdon is saying, I have a legitimate disagreement with you about what it is that, that, that is the right attitude towards government. Nonetheless, our Chachamim did not retract their statement, and it's in their statement that I place all of my belief. I encourage you when you have time later to go through the sugya. Right now, this is not the sugya that I wanted to go to, but we discussed this concept of 
ne neglecting almost one's body or, or, or uh, in a place of ridding yourself of physicality. We hear these terms a lot, and like Zev correctly pointed out, that sometimes people take this to a very unhealthy place. And we need to clarify a little better what, what exactly our Chachamim are trying to tell us. And so I thought of a good place to go from here would be to none other than Perkei Avot. So if you click on the other link, the other link that I gave you in the Zoom invitation, also if you look in the Google Classroom, look in the Classwork section. There should be a piece that says, Nachalat Avot, Rabbi Yosef Masast. You should see that there. Nachalat Avot, number 493. Click on that. And there's a link that I put in there to Pirkei Avot, 6-4. Do you see that? Yes. So if you like, you could just look up Pirkei Avot, chapter 6, Mishnah 4. Now we all know that the reason why I'm not quoting classic commentaries on this Mishnah Pirkei Avot is for the very simple reason that there aren't really classic commentaries on the 6th chapter of Pirkei Avot. The sixth chapter of Prakavot is not part of Prakavot because it's kind of like the sixth book of the Chumash. There is no sixth book of the Chumash. There also is no sixth chapter of Prakavot. When we incorporated a sixth chapter of Prakavot, it's a great conversation for a different time, but traditionally we only have five chapters of Prakavot. The sixth chapter is a collection of random rabbinic teachings, and therefore only the later generations of Chachamim really commented much, at least in this place, on the, the topics that are mentioned here. So in Mishnah 4 of chapter 6 in Pekavot, This is the way of the life of Torah. You should eat bread with salt. And you should eat ration amounts of water. You should sleep on the ground. And you should live a life of suffering. And you should study Torah. And if you do this, it should be fulfilled in you what it says in Tehillim chapter 128, How praise are, worthy are you and how good, how good is it for you? How good is it for you and how praiseworthy are you in this world and how good is it for you in the next world? And the general understanding of this Mishnah is that a person really harms their body in order to study Torah. Zev, is that not the way that it's taught everywhere? I think that that's the way that it's taught traditionally. So let's look at the writings of Rabbi Yosef Basas, and we're going to find two different readings of this Mishnah in Masakh Zavon. I should just let you know, before I get to Rabbi Yosef Basas, the Chida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef Zibra Zulayin, Petach Enayin, writes something beautiful, and I think that it's the Emet, so I'm sharing it now because I think it's Emet. The Chida writes, what does it mean here? This is the way of the Torah. You will love the Torah so much that it doesn't make a difference to you if you're sleeping on the floor, if you only have bread to eat, if you only have water. You won't even realize you don't even realize that your life is bad because it's not bad. Because you're so happy with Torah that you don't feel any of these things. What other people would feel are, is oppressive, you don't feel it. So it's not that you should go out of your way to hurt yourself, but to the contrary. The Torah gives you so much satisfaction that you don't actually feel the other things, the things that people think are lacking. You have everything that you need. You have bread, you have water, you have a bed, you have a, it's a floor, so what? Who cares? It doesn't bother you. And I believe that that's the emit. That's the right way to read this Mishnah. This Mishnah is not a prescription to suffer or to afflict yourself in order to acquire Torah. But let's look at the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas together. As you know, because we spent time together in our community studying this specific book of Rabbi Yosef Masas, 
This book is called Nachalat Avot. Nachalat Avot. We saw the picture of him very recently, right? With the red hat. Yeah. Rabbi Yosef Masas was the chief rabbi of Tlemcen, Algeria, born in Morocco. Chief rabbi of Tlemcen. And uh, makes his way to Eretz Israel, where he becomes the chief rabbi of Haifa. And passes away in Eretz Israel. He collected all of his speeches on Perkevot, and it's, today it's actually reprinted. So it's a little bit censored. They censored some of the more, uh, the more controversial stuff out of the book, unfortunately. But nonetheless, it's a very easy set to find because it's been reprinted in the last four or five years. And so if somebody wanted this set, it's only in Hebrew, of course, but if somebody wanted this set, unlike 10 years ago where you wouldn't be able to find it, Hashem today, it's all over the place. He writes in speech 493. Moray v'rabotai, my masters and my teachers, on page 230. You see the top right, it's like 230. Also on this Shabbat, with Hashem's help, I intend to continue my teachings on Perkei Avot like last week. And what I understand from this Mishnah and Perkei Avot is that the holy Tanah, the author of the Mishnah, included in all of the warnings he gives us, the things we need to know about Torah, he comes to add something else in this teaching. That a person is not exempt from learning Torah even when they're poor. Even if he is terribly poor and is suffering terribly. And like the Rambam writes in the first chapter of the laws of Talmud Torah. Every Jewish man is, is obligated in Talmud Torah. Whether he's poor or he's wealthy. Ben Shalem Begufo, Ben Bali Surim. Whether he's healthy or not. Ben Bachur, Ben Zaken Gadol. Whether he's a young child or he's very old. Even a poor person who goes knocking door to door for money. Even if a person is married and has a wife and children. What does that have to do with anything? The Rabbi Yosef Masas is going to write that maybe a person suffers because they don't have money. Some people suffer because they're not healthy. That some people suffer because of the wife they're married to, and some people suffer because of the children they have. Everybody has different kinds of sufferings, and it doesn't make a difference. We still are obligated to learn Torah. A person must make time every morning and every night to study Torah. There is no Jewish person on earth who is exempt from studying Torah in the morning and in the evening. Now you study Torah with me now. But this doesn't last for any longer than tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning you have to learn again. Tomorrow night again, Shabbat morning again, Shabbat night again, Sunday morning again. Sunday, the whole life, your whole life you have to learn like this. It doesn't make a difference what your situation is. It's not optional. It's an obligation. It's a halakha and the shulchan aruch. Every Jewish person must study Torah in the morning and in the evening. Shneimar, like it says, v'hagita bo yomam that you must study Torah day and night. And then Rabbi Yosef Masas comes to tell us two stories, which are beautiful stories, and I wanted to share them with you. The first is a story. He said, I heard a story from my father and my teacher. Now, if you remember, 
Rabbi Yosef Masas's father passed away when Rabbi Yosef Masas was a young boy. He didn't really merit to know him much. In fact, the book that we have, I have a copy, Nishmat Chaim, of Rabbi Chaim Masas, the father of Rabbi Yosef Masas, is published posthumously by Rabbi Yosef. He goes around collecting the leftover manuscripts of his father, most of which unfortunately became moldy and ruined by water damage in the attic of the Masas family house. They just left it up there till he was old enough to take care of the books. And when he was old enough to realize his father left behind manuscripts and he went up to look at them, most of them were already destroyed. And he spent the rest of his life collecting stories and teachings from people who knew his father that he never knew. He never merited to know his father in that way. By the way, Rabbi Yosef Masas writes in the introduction to Prakavot, the first volume of this set, that from a very young age, his father would make him every day come and say a derasha, come tell me a Dvar Torah. And he would make him stand up nice, dress nicely, speak nicely. No, don't say um, don't say but, don't, don't mumble. Say it again. Quote, speak nicely, project your voice, say a joke, tell a story. He would prep him on how to speak nicely. And his aunt, he said, he remembers his holy aunt would always come to save him from his father because his father was very strict on how he should learn how to speak. He said, but really I praise my father that only because of him do I know how to write derashot and speak derashot. I'm only able to teach. I got all my uh, pedagogical skills from him. I was taught by my father in Bichayim Masas. So here he tells a story. Shayim Saper that he would say, that he saw in a handwritten manuscript from this rabbi. The one of the rabbis of the city centuries ago, Shekadav, he wrote, that he used to live in the same courtyard. The rabbi lived in the same courtyard. This is presumably in Mikness, in, in Morocco. In the same courtyard as a poor man who never in his whole life did he merit to have a whole loaf of bread. He was so poor that all the food he brought home was always scraps. He would have little scraps of leftover food that other people would give him after they finished their meals. And he was very sick with a cough. He had a uh, constant chronic cough. All day and all night he never was able to stop coughing. And he had a wife and children. They were all naked and barefoot, meaning they didn't have clothes, tattered clothing. And he would study Torah day and night, modestly. And nobody knew that he even knew Torah. They just knew he was a poor guy. At the same time, For whatever reason that it happened in that time, there were numerous Jewish women in the city of Miknes that needed uh, uh, help getting out of an aguna status where their husbands were unable to give them a get. And the rabbis didn't sleep at night trying to find ways to let these women remarry. One Friday night, early in the morning, this poor man fainted, he passed out. And the wife called out to the rabbi across the courtyard to come visit him. Because he was also the head of the, the, the Jewish, uh, all the chesed societies. That means the, the Bikur Cholim society. That means the burial society. And the rabbi went up to the home where this poor man lived. And the rabbi gave him medications that he knew how to make. It was based on the science of those times, he writes. Until the man's spirit returned to him and he came back to consciousness. 
So the rabbi not just prayed with him, but also gave him his own medications and helped him. And the rabbi was bewildered. He saw how many books of halakha this poor man had in his home that were open. And as soon as the man was able to catch his breath, he told the rabbi, And I found a clear heter, a way for this woman to remarry. And the rabbi, you can imagine, was astonished that this poor man, who everyone knows is just a regular person, he had a, an answer that the rabbis of the city couldn't come up with. And the, the rabbi saw the gilayon, the whole uh, manuscript, the, the letter that he had prepared about this topic. He saw that they were clear, concise, pure, logical reasons that this man had put together in halakha. And the rabbi was bewildered. Because the rabbi always assumed that his neighbor across the courtyard was just a simple man. And he saw that he was very wealthy, very, very wealthy, very uh, great in Torah. And he saw that he was poor and suffering, but he was great in Torah. His wife told him, The whole day and the whole night, this man never ate or drank. He never slept. That he was just writing and writing and writing and writing this letter until he passed out. Okay, this is really not relevant to us. Let's find, continue the story. The rabbi turns to him, and tells him, Just like you merited to the wealth of Torah, You will also merit to uh, wealth in your body as well. So physical wealth, not just spiritual wealth. Fahiba Boker was the next day. The rabbi went, And he told the whole story to the rabbis that were sitting with him on this Aguna committee. And they looked into this man's writings, and they found that they were true. And on that day they agreed to permit all of these women to remarry. All the rabbis came to this man's home to visit him. They all cried because he was suffering. But he was very happy in his lot. said, look, I'm not losing out on anything. I'm okay. I'm not losing out on any Torah. They wanted to give him a nice sum of money. He didn't accept it. When they pushed him to take the money, he answered, that his heart already uh, prophesied to him. That Hashem has already answered, has approved the blessing of the rabbi that blessed him on Friday night. And he knows that on Tuesday or Wednesday, the blessing will come true. Don't worry, I'll suffer for a few more days. And I won't accept tzedakah from anybody. And they all said, Amen, Amen. They agreed to respect him. And they left the house both full of joy and of concern. They wanted to help this man, and he doesn't want their help. He says, I believe in the blessing of the rabbi. The rabbi says, I'm here to give you money. You don't want my money. And so here's what happens in the story. From that moment on, 
התחילו להראות בו סימני בריאות. He started getting healthier. והיא הולך וחזק עוד יום, עד יום שני שהתחזק בטוב דרך פלא. Until already Monday came around and he was strong. Maybe I'll summarize this story here. What happens was that the Jews lived in these little ghettos. And when they would come out of the ghetto, every two or three months, you know, they would throw their trash. There was a place that everybody would go out of the walls and throw their trash. The Jews and the Arabs had a place to throw trash. And every three, two or three months, the mayor, the governor, whoever he was, he would send a few of his Arab police officers, they would come there, and any Jew that came out of the gates, they would grab him, they would give him a shovel, they would tell him to go take all of the trash and move it to a place about one kilometer away from the city. That was their job. They wouldn't pay them, nothing. It was, they were forced labor. The Jewish people had to get rid of the city's trash. And they would do this, it would take them four or five days, and they would force all the Jews to do the work. Every day it was somebody else, it was a different person who came out. This man was so healthy that he decided to go for a walk outside of the walls of the city, and one of these police officers grabbed him, threw a shovel in his hands, and he went out uh, to go shovel the trash. And as he's shoveling through the trash, he finds something, and he says, this must be the blessing of Hashem, and he puts it in his pocket. He goes home for lunch, and he opens it up, and he finds there money and other valuables. And so he goes back again after lunch and he digs again and he's taking the trash and he finds another such thing. And he comes home and he was able to live for the rest of his life from the money that he had made. Until the point where he decided he has enough money. Why should he stay in Morocco? Remember Rabbi Yosef Kapach once told us that in Yemen they didn't need Zionism because Zionism is a medication for a sickness. The sickness of Jewish people who don't want to go to Eretz Israel. He said, so as soon as the Jews in Yemen were able to leave, they left. It was no, no Zionism needed. Throughout the life, people had enough money, they went. They just kept going to Israel. It was a steady stream of Yemenite Jews going to Israel. The same thing happens here. So I have enough money, why don't they live here? He moves to Tveria and says, Zalbiyo Yosem on page 232 at the end of the first paragraph, Shem Haish Rabbi Mordechai ben Harosh. The name of the man was Rabbi Mordechai ben Harosh. That was the name of this Chacham in the story. You find the person who studied Torah even when he was poor, and he merited to learn Torah even when he was wealthy because of his dedication to the Torah. But there's another story. And this story I want to read to you also on page 233. This is the classical way to read this Mishnah. But there's another way. The truth is, I read the story many times, and I don't truly understand the connection to the lesson he wants to take from it. But nonetheless, it's a good story. So I'll share with you the story, and then I'll tell you the lesson that I think is completely unrelated. I saw a story, that was written in a book. You should know, Yosef traveled to many, many people's libraries, and he would record all kinds of stories he found in handwritten manuscripts that were never published. You find that as he travels, he would say, you know, I was in this town a few years ago, and there was a beautiful book written 400 years old, and it had these stories, and I came now to reference something, because I saw it there, and I wanted to copy it down word for word, and the owner of the home told me that there was a fire, the goyim had set a fire to his house and burned down his manuscripts. Or whatever happened, his wife was doing something, and the bookcase fell into water, and the books were destroyed. All kinds of things happened. And he records not only the libraries that he discovered, but also the thousands of libraries that he saw destroyed and vandalized by anti-Semites throughout the Jews' stay in Morocco. 
מעשה ראיתי כתוב זה כמה על ספר יצא לסע סטורי. והוא בימי הגאון רבינו יחיאל מפריז, and it's in the days of רבי יחיאל of פריז, מבעלי התוספות, a French rabbi, so this is not a story about ספר נחכמים, it's an Ashkenazi story. He passed away in 1286. In the neighborhood of Rabbi Chiel of Paris, he was one of the rabbis of the Tosafot. We know Tosafot is not, a, not one rabbi. The Tosafot is a collection of French and German rabbis. There was a 40-year-old man who was very strong and very healthy. And he was poor as poor could get. And he would study Torah day and night. ויתלו אם זקנן, he had an elderly Jewish mother, שהייתה מתקנאת תמיד מבעלי הון האוכלים למעדנים. And she was very jealous of all the wealthy people in the neighborhood who ate such delightful food. ומתענגים בדירות נאות, and lived in nice homes. וכלי בית יקרים, and they had nice silverware and plates, ומלבושים בגדי גבות, and they wore all kinds of fancy clothing. She was jealous. והיא הובנה, and her and her son, they lived a life of suffering with nothing. And every day, like a good Jewish mother, she would fight with her son. And she would scream at him. You stupid son! There are people in our neighborhood, they're not even one hundredth as strong as you. They run around and collect money. וחיים חיי עונג, and they live a life of pleasure. ואתה, שאתה חסון כאלון, יושב בחיבוק ידיים, רק תורה, תורה, יומם ולילה, או you just sit there all day learning תורה, תורה, day and night. וערום, ויחף, ורעב, וצמא, you're naked and you're barefoot and you're hungry and you're thirsty, והוא היה שותק and he was quiet. והיא צועקת עליו בחרפות וגדיופין וקללות נמרצות, and she would scream at him and curse him and shout at him all day long. ויום אחד עלה עשן באפה, ותרם יד להכותו במקל חובלים. One day she got so upset at him for being so lazy learning Torah all day, that she decided to take a stick and start to beat him up. ויברח מפניה, at that point he ran away from the house. ותרוץ אחריו, she runs after him, וימצא פתח פתוח בית הגאון הנ"ל, and he saw that the door to רבי יחיאל of Paris' house was open, so he ran into the house of רבינו יחיאל. ותיכנס אחריו להכותו מכת מוות, ויצעק עליה גאון, and she came in there to beat him to death, and the גאון screams at her, ותיפול ותתעלף מרוב כעסן, she was so angry that she passed out, she fainted. ויסעדוה בכמה תרופות, ותשוב רוחן, they gave her a little bit of medicine, maybe some smelling salts, whatever it was, and she came back. וישאל אותה הגאון, מה יש להם בנה? The rabbi looks at her and says, lady, what's wrong with you? What do you have against your son? What did he do to you? ותספר לו כל עניינה, and she told him everything. דברים כהווייתם, exactly the truth. ויסב פניו הגאון אל הבן וישאלו, and he turns his face to the son and he says, מה יש לך להשיב את דברי אמך? What do you have to respond to your mother? ויען, he answers, נפשי חשקה בתורה, my heart desires תורה. לא אוכל, לא אוכל לעזבה בשום אופן. I'm unable to leave her for any reason. ויחשוב הגאון מעט, and the rabbi thought for a moment, ויאמר להם, and he told him, he told them, שבו נא בזה, וחכו עליי שעה או שתיים. Please relax, calm down a little bit, don't kill each other till I get back. Give me about an hour or two till I come back home. ובעזר אלוהים, הושיע אתכם כרצון שניכם. And with Hashem's help, I will come up with a solution that will work for both of you, both for the mother and for the son. ויקום ואילך, and he got up and left, ויברכו, and they blessed him במקום, ברוך הוא ישלח הזכה מקודש. 
Rabbi, we have no idea what you're cooking up. We have no idea what your plan is, but God bless you. Now, you know, when someone tells you God bless you, it's because they know that you don't stand a chance. Paris had a relative who was very wealthy. And he had three daughters. The older daughter, no suitors came to date her. She was beautiful and she was very wise, but nobody wanted her. And uh, the two younger sisters, everybody wanted to marry. There's a custom, especially in Ashkenazi communities, not to marry off younger daughters before the older daughters. It's not a halakha, it's not anything aside from, they just don't want the older daughter to be offended. Sometimes the older daughter says, I don't want to get married. Well, in that case, leave her alone. You can marry the younger daughters off. The younger sisters were really suffering. They wanted to get married, but their sister was not marriageable. Nobody wanted her. This father was also very wealthy, but also very sick with this cough, perpetual cough. And at that moment when Rabbi Nechiel came to visit him, he was coughing almost like he was going to die. And in that moment, Rabbi Nechiel comes into the house. Rabbi, good that you came. I'm about to die. I need a rabbi here. And the rabbi answers, Relax, my son. Trust in Hashem. He said, I found for you a medication that will heal your soul and your body. And the man answers, Please tell me what the medication is. So here I understand Rabbi Nechiel Paris. He has two people in his living room waiting for a secret magic. He has one guy here about to die. He tells him, I have a secret medication for you also. This Rabbi Nechiel must have some clever solution. He told him the whole story about the crazy lady and her son. This man, Rabbeinu Chiyah says, listen, you have a daughter. She needs to get married. She's very wise. She's very smart. She's very beautiful. But nobody wants her. I have a guy who wants to study Torah. And he doesn't want to do anything else except for studying Torah. Why don't you marry your daughter after him? You promise to support him so he can study Torah. She will be happy. You will be happy. The boy will be happy. His mother will be happy. Everybody will be happy if we make a shidduch. So the man says, it's a great idea. He calls his daughter. He tells her the story. And she agrees. She says, that's a great idea. I like this idea. But I just want to make sure that I can meet him myself. Why does she want to meet him? I want to see if he's really the Tamid Chacham you're telling me about. He's 40, he's single, lives with his mom, only learns Torah. Why would I want to marry him? I want to see for myself that he has uh, wisdom. And if he is really a Tamid Chacham, I will be for him a maidservant. Told him, good, that's a great idea. The rabbi goes back to his house. When he tells the boy, go and wash yourself. Where's Rachatzutar? It's a play on words. Go uh, cleanse yourself, shower. 
get rid of those filthy clothes from you. And the rabbi gives him very nice clothing from his own closet. And he brings him to the wealthy father's house. And they greet him with a lot of honor. And the man was so happy, he forgot he was coughing. He stood up. And he hugged him and he kissed him. So no social distancing. And he sat him down next to his daughter, to the right of his daughter. So this whole story would never pass in today's orthodoxy because Chaz Shalom, how are they sitting next to each other? They're not even married. And the boy and the girl, they start talking to each other. And really, if I had time, I would go through all the cute Pesukim and Divrei Torah. They're laughing about each other. Says the... Says Rabbi Yosef Masas a few lines down, they made a joke about a Dvar Torah and Tehilim, and she was so impressed that she started laughing and blushing because she liked what he was saying so much. And then the man, the boy, is so excited, and the bottom line is that they decide to get married. But Yosef but the boy gets up and we're in the middle of the paragraph, and he says. We're a little bit different though than Avraham Avinu and his daughters-in-law and everything else that happened there. Because over there, before, before Rivka saw Yitzchak, she already said, I'm going. Meaning, she didn't want to check me out first, she just went to Yitzchak. He says, and me, I'm not like Yitzchak. My wife says she wants to meet me first. She doesn't want to commit without meeting me first. So really, I would love to be like our forefathers, but I feel like there's something wrong with our shidduch. Everybody starts laughing. And the boy said, But it's a very simple answer. What the difference between me and Yitzchak Avinu is. Rivka lived in the house of Rishayim. And all she wanted to do her whole life was to leave her wicked family. But here, my future bride is living in the house of Tzadikim, the relatives of Benu Yichiel of Paris. And she will only leave them to a place that is good for her, that her heart desires. And he turns his face to the, his father-in-law, future father-in-law, and he says, He said, you, my father-in-law, just like you made a poor man's heart happy, Hashem should make you happy with a complete recovery. And Hashem should remove all sickness from you. And he kept adding brachot for this man. And everybody was happy. It was a happy shidduch. And they decided on the shidduch. And the father of this girl finally found nachat. And every day he healed himself. Until after a month he was already completely healed. And he collected a nice amount of money, a dowry to give. And he bought a huge mansion for his daughter to live with beautiful things. And after three months, they got married in a chupa. And he helped his son-in-law study Torah. And they lived a life of, of joy, of, of pleasure. And even this mother-in-law was able to move in with his son. And he was able, this is not a happily ever after story. The mother-in-law with the stick comes with. And she moves in. And she's happy to see her son and her daughter-in-law and the grandchildren. It says, you want to know who the man is? The famous Rabbi Yitzchak Mikorbil, who you see 
often quoted, he's one of the authors of the Tosafot. The story is a nice story. Rabbi Yosef Masas is another reading of this Mishnah, and this is what I wanted to share with you today. And this is what the Tana intended when he meant that this is the way of the Torah, that you should eat bread with salt and water, you should ration out. What does it mean? It's talking about health. This is what the Torah commands you to do with your health. Even though now you're strong and you're, you're healthy. You're able to eat bread and salt. What's bread? Listen, listen, Rabbi Yosef Masaz here. It's not a, oh, this is a chacham who understands. You don't have the sickness of sugar. What is the sickness of sugar? Diabetes. Diabetes. You don't have diabetes, he says. You're able to eat bread all that you want. You can have carbohydrates. You can have all kinds of things. And you don't have any kind of illness that doesn't allow you to have salt. And also water and rations you should drink. Because based on medicine, any person that you see drinking excessive amounts of liquids, it tells you, someone who's a medical professional will know, that there's something wrong with this person that needs to be checked out. Internally, there's a reason why they're drinking so much. And everybody who drinks a little bit and a little bit, that shows that they're healthy. They're able to eat and drink in proper amounts. Says Rabbi Yosef Masas, the whole purpose of this Mishnah is not to tell you at all about suffering, to the contrary. The Mishnah is to tell you that even when you're healthy, don't abuse your body. Even when you're healthy, don't eat too much bread. A little bread, a little salt, drink a little water, don't, don't go get your big gulp slurpees. Everyone should relax a little bit and take care of themselves. The whole Mishnah here is to tell you about protecting your body in order so that you may be able to acquire Torah. And I think that, and if you look at the, the Rabbi Yosef uh, Masas and whatever else he writes, there's a lot of beautiful things here. But ultimately, I believe that all of these Pirushim are true. That a person who runs after this world, what do I mean by this world? For them there are things that are important. What's important? All kinds of nonsensical things that people run after. So of course it's hard to sit here at 10 o'clock at night learning Talmud. Why would I learn Talmud? I'd rather be doing 100 things. There are people who come home, they finish work at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, they sit on their couch, they turn on Netflix or whatever they do until they fall asleep on the couch. They wake up the next morning, they brush their teeth, they get on Zoom, they go to work, they finish, they sit back down on the couch. Maybe this time it's Amazon Prime, they do the same thing again until they fall asleep on the couch. They don't do anything with their life. What makes a person decide that they want to learn Torah? It's a person who realizes that all of the pursuits that other people pursue, they're fun. It's fun to do certain things. But it's so much better to learn Torah. And learning Torah doesn't come on account of your health. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. But a person should understand what's important in life. A person understands to prioritize things that are important in their life. A person understands to respect their body as well. To make sure that in order that they can learn Torah properly, there's a famous tefillah from the Chida, where we pray for health. We say, HaKadosh Baruch give us health so that we may observe Torah properly. How many times do people not pray in the morning because they're not feeling well? How many times do people not able to keep Shabbat because they have to rush to the emergency room? To, to How many times do people, they do all kinds of things because they don't take care of themselves. 
So to the contrary, what I understand from the Benish Chai San is not telling you to abuse your body and in that way you can accept Torah. But that a person has to realize that between, between the choice of body and soul, between choosing physical, not pleasure, but physical narcissism, to be so obsessed with your body that you don't care at all about what's inside of your body, what's good for your body, what's good for your nishama, what's good for your nefesh. Look at both of these stories. Both of these stories had sick people. Sick people who were healed not by medications, but sick people who were healed by a change in lifestyle. Let me explain this, what I mean when I say this. The Rabbeinu Arambam writes that technically, I mean, and he doesn't write, you can infer from what he writes, that technically every physical sickness is accompanied by an emotional or spiritual sickness. That things don't, hap- things don't happen to people's bodies unless there's something that's lacking in a spiritual place, in an emotional place. And we know this very, we see what stress does to people. You can ask doctors that will tell you how much stress. Stress, you don't take medications for stress. There's no uh, pills you can pop to get rid of your stress. People who are stressed out their whole life, it ruins their body. What does an emotion have to do with one's body? But we know, our Chachamim have known for a long time, that the way that a person treats their neshama, a way that a person treats their mind, how many people lead themselves? I'm not talking about Chazashalom people who were born a certain way. How many people lead themselves to insanity? They get involved in things that literally make them crazy. They lose their peace of mind over and over and over. Your mind is a sensitive organ. People can destroy themselves. They destroy their well-being. They're always fighting. They're always angry. They're always mad. They're always, there are people like this. They ruin themselves. And so what's left? There's a whole other way to heal yourself. Aside from medication. That's if a person needs to go to a doctor, go to a doctor. But there's a way to heal yourself by working on yourself too. Sometimes you realize what's causing you problems in life is you're suffering because of something. For one man, he was suffering because he didn't have food. Another man suffered because he was worried so much about his daughter never getting married. Everyone suffers from something. And it's incumbent on us, if we wish to have a relationship with the Kadosh Baruch to take care of our suffering, not just our physical suffering. Don't get so concerned about the bread and the salt and the water. He has food, he has where to sleep. And how many people don't give themselves the right, the privilege to enjoy sanity, to enjoy a stress-free life, to enjoy a life, you know, our parents once had a situation, I was in Yeshiva then, we had a guy in Israel. I don't remember what he was working, maybe some high-tech company or a bank, it could have been a bank. You know, in Israel, high-tech and finance are very high-paying jobs. And they had a terrible management on top of him that made his life miserable. Working nights, weekends, he never saw his children, never saw his wife. He missed birthday parties. Shabbat, he'd come a minute before Shabbat. Right after Shabbat, he'd run back to the office and it was a balagan. And he asked the Rappelt, what should he do? And the Rappelt said, get a different job. He said, but I can't, this is the job in the field that I'm in. Rappelt you don't understand. Get yourself a job at a pizza place. Go flip pizzas in a pizza store. But pizza for Rappelt is like the worst food on earth. It's a... Uh, it's for Amehar, it's a pizza. For him, it's, a, it's a, like it's the worst thing you do. It's go be a trash collector. Go work in a pizza store. He said, why would I work in a pizza store? Is it a pizza store? What kind of stress do you have in a pizza store? You get to work your hours, you come home, you see your wife, you see your kids, maybe you bring them some food from the store. He said, you value only your money, your physical well-being, your money, financial well-being, that's all you care about. But you don't realize that you're ruining yourself. You ruin your sanity by working for bad people. You're in a stressed out environment. You don't see your wife. You don't see your children. How do you ever expect to grow? How do you ever expect to accomplish things in Torah if that's the lifestyle that you're leading? I think that with COVID that we've all been in the last nine months, eight months, I don't know how many months, 
So a lot of things have changed, some for better, some for worse. And then many people have realized that grind that they were a part of, that daily grind, day in, day out, the same concrete buildings in Sorrento Valley, you go in before the sun comes up and you leave after the sun goes down and you don't realize that you're 15 minutes away from Torrey Pines Beach or whatever you might be. You realize you, the whole life you're inside of someone else's cement building working on computers or filing papers or whatever else you do. It gave a whole new perspective to life. I'm home with my spouse, with my children. By the way, some people, are, they're realizing that the people they married, they only survived marriage so long because they were away from home. Now that they're home, they're not sure how they're surviving the next few months of marriage. Everybody had their own challenges. But people realized to appreciate life. Your physical well-being is dependent on your spiritual and emotional well-being. Torah is the key to your physical well-being. Don't indulge in physicality because you think that that will do good for you. Indulge in your Torah. And ultimately, your body will take care of itself. You'll eat exactly how much you need to eat. You'll drink exactly how much you need to drink. You will sleep exactly how much you need to sleep. But focus on the things that can affect you that there are no medications for. Focus on what the Torah can give to your life. You wish to learn the first Mishnah, Me'ematai, focus on the first men. Realize the frame of reference that Moshe Rabbeinu was, the frame of mind Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to get himself into before he goes up to Hal Sinai to cleanse himself of any need, of any want in this world, to replace that with Torah. Well, Moshe Rabbeinu never ate or never drank again? Of course he did. But in order to receive, he had to be willing to prioritize his life between what is really good for me and what is only secondary, what is only a necessity, and what is a must, what is an obligation, what is, a, what is optional. And that, Ibn Hashem, is our journey in Torah and mitzvot, to make sure that we know how to prioritize our limut Torah with all the other things that we juggle in life. And Ibn Hashem, if we do that, Hashem should bless us that just like we learn Torah here at night, sometimes we're tired, sometimes we're falling asleep, sometimes we're hungry, sometimes we're challenged with all kinds of challenges in our life, if they're financial or emotional, whatever they are. I give us a blessing that by this time next week, everybody should be learning Torah together, only out of hachavat adat, out of abundance of everything, of emotional health, of spiritual health, of physical health, of wealth, all kinds of wonderful things. Every time have a beautiful evening and a Shabbat Shalom when it comes.